From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Usually when we talk about what is happening to the Amazon, we speak in terms of square mileage. How much was there before? How much is there now? And if you watch the maps from year to year, and certainly from decade to decade, the losses are quite striking. But there's another way to think about this. And for me, it's even more devastating. Over the past 20 years, the entire Amazon biome, which spans nine countries in South America, has been a net carbon sink, removing about 1.7 billion metric tons of CO2 equivalent, more than it emitted. But the Brazilian portion of this vast rainforest, which is by far the biggest part of the Amazon, emitted 3.6 billion metric tons of CO2 equivalent, more than it sequestered. Transformed by fires and deforestation, the Brazilian Amazon is now a net CO2 source. The man who is in the best position to make a change that will impact not just Brazil's future, but the future of everyone on this planet, is Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who was sworn in as president of Brazil earlier this month. Lula has promised that he's going to repeal policies that expanded mining in the Amazon and that he's going to bolster federal agencies tasked with protecting the forest and that he's going to create a specialized police force to take on the sophisticated gangs that are looting the jungle. But Brazil is not a dictatorship. And so Lula can't do this alone. And if it wasn't very clear what deep divisions he would have to contend with before his election, it was really clear just a week after his inauguration, when rioters swarmed government buildings in a failed insurrection that looked very similar to the one that the United States suffered two years earlier. Writing for the New York Times a week before the Brazilian insurrection, the investigative journalist Eriberto Araujo noted that even if he makes the rainforest the signature issue of his presidency, Lula will be fighting an uphill battle. Araujo is the author of Masters of the Lost Land, The Untold Story of the Amazon, and the Violent Fight for the World's Last Frontier. And he's joining us today to talk about Lula's coming fight and the human story behind the loss of one of our greatest resources to fight climate change. Eriberto Araujo, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We pre-record this program, and, you know, I wouldn't usually make note of the date that an interview occurred, but I think that it's an important piece of context for the conversation that we're having today because you and I are speaking to one another less than 24 hours after the attempted insurrection in Brazil. And I remember how brokenhearted I felt when this happened in the United States. So I wanted to start today just by asking you, how, how are you doing today? Well, uh, as you've said, this is incredibly sad. Um, I would say I thought that um, there were some perhaps um, insights in which we could argue that perhaps something like this might happen. First of all, of course, uh, during Bolsonaro's era, he has been encouraging uh, almost everyone who is willing to follow him, um, you know, to uh, believe that Brazilian, Brazil is not a democracy, uh, that, you know, the Supreme Court is under the control of some hidden forces, uh, which he never really explained. And of course, he never proved. 
and and that you know uh, Congress and most worryingly, I would say uh, elections, you know, might be uh, the object of, of fraud, uh, which you know um, is again an unproven you know statement that he made. And now we've seen what's the result of having you know the head of the head of the state of you know Latin America's greatest uh, largest country and one of the biggest democracies in the world, you know, uh, saying that over and over. I don't think that anyone who has been watching Brazilian politics would be surprised to know of the deep divisions in that nation right now. I mean, the acts like the storming of Congress are shocking by their nature, but uh, Brazil has been divided for a long time and, and is certainly right now. That's going to be one of Lula's greatest challenges in general. I mean, before we even get to the rainforest issue, just to govern in a divided nation is very challenging, yes? Absolutely. I think that, you know, there is the context is extremely complex, I would say. First of all, you have, you know, we can't forget that Lula was in jail a few years ago. So when he managed uh, to actually prove in courts that uh, his conviction wasn't fair, and he decided to run again for president. I think that he did an uh, incredibly important thing for Brazil, including for the rainforest, uh, which needs to convince, you know, that 30-40% of Brazilians uh, who voted for Bolsonaro and who thinks that Lula is simply, you know, uh, a gangster, you know, uh, that, that he is just a corrupt man, that he uh, made a fraud with uh, probably the Supreme Court and part of the uh, Brazilian parliament just to, you know, to grab power. One of the biggest hurdles for the incoming government is this very per- pervasive notion in Brazil that the Amazon is, it's kind of like an either or proposition. Either we can have the rainforest or we can have a strong economy, but we can't have both. And you wrote in the New York Times, that this narrative really helps explain why in the last election, Bolsonaro won the popular vote in five of the nine states that make up the Brazilian Amazon, and that several Amazonian governors who were supporting the exploitation of the forest were also reelected. What what do you think it's going to take to combat these notions in these states, in these holdout areas where it is believed that really, you know, we can't have a great economy, we can't have a strong economy if we're not exploiting the rainforest? I think we need to put in context what Brazil is in terms of global trade, which is very important, and also looking a bit, you know, uh, in the past uh, two decades. I mean, when Lula reached power, Brazil was exporting something like 50 to 60 billion US dollars uh, of agro-commodities, you now have a country uh, like Brazil, which is an agribusiness superpower, exporting uh, something like 160 billion US dollars of agro-commodities. There is a political and an economic elite uh, which supports Bolsonaro because they want to continue expanding the frontier to you know, increase that uh, output and continue exporting. So uh, one of the key things that I believe Lula needs to do is to prove to the, you know, average uh, people 
those who want to have a lazy job, that they can have, you know, uh, a job that they don't have to destroy the force to support their families. So I think one of the key issues is to prove them that they can have a job to provide them opportunities, economic opportunities. Uh, the second thing that I believe is key for Lula is accountability. I think that, um, of course, Bolsonaro has uh, purportedly, you know, undermined all the federal agencies that fought all kinds of criminals, including criminal networks uh, who are behind deforestation. And now Lula has to prove uh, to those who, you know, follow the rules that if you destroy the forest, you are going to be uh, apprehended, uh, prosecuted, convicted, and most crucially, jailed. Because this is often a process that, you know, you see people um, who or criminals who commit crimes um, and they never go to jail, even if they are convicted. In your book, you tell the story of one of the victims of this violence, the leader of a workers' union in Rondon do Para, which is a municipality in the northern region of Brazil. His name was Jose Dutra da Costa, but everybody knew him by the nickname Dezinho. What, what was Dezinho fighting for? I think that what he was trying to fight for at the end of the day was rule of law and democracy. But of course, what he was, you know, trying to confront was uh, what I would say an absolute lawlessness in the sense that Rondon do Pará was uh, founded in the early 1960s. That was, you know, what we uh, call pristine jungle in a sense that we could imagine this incredibly dense and towering jungle inhabited, of course, by indigenous uh, groups. Uh, some of them uh, who had never been previously contacted. And then the uh, military government uh, uh, in, in Brazil decided to open up the frontier. So the plan was they were going to split a huge swath of uh, jungle and give each family farmer something like 20 or 50 hectares. And at the end of the day, what you have uh, or what happened in Rondon do Pará and Desinho had to confront was uh, an elite dominating uh, tens of thousands of hectares of uh, jungle, uh, deforesting the jungle, um, using some labor as modern slave uh, to, uh, you know, uh, deforest uh, those forests and, and, and kind of uh, set up ranches. And... And he fought for what I think is today the main problem of the Amazon, which is land grabbing, speculation. Uh, so uh, you have a situation in which uh, entrepreneurs or ranchers uh, decide to uh, steal an area of the uh, Amazon by simply uh, making a fraud in terms of documents and then, of course, uh, deforesting the, the, the region. And for... I would say many years or even decades, they, they, they prevail. And, and the Zinho, um, he was, as you said, the leader of a small uh, workers' union in the, in the region. And he began to receive a lot of you know, information from some of those escaped uh, workers, uh, laborers from the ranches in which they say that they had witnessed or they had seen 
uh, murders of uh, workers by by some ranchers, and he began investigating, and that's when uh, all his troubles and and began for him and for his family, of course. You you mentioned his family, and this is um, this is very sad, you know, because Dezinho he knew he was a target for taking on these landowners, and you wrote that his name actually appeared on a public list of people to be eliminated that was at very least an attempted intimidation, but might've also been a genuine hit list. And this has some pretty profound impacts on him and his family. And even, even what he and his wife would allow their children to do too. Can you talk a little about that? I think this is, I mean, the story of the Zinho and, and who is, the, one of the heroes of the of the book, but I consider the real hero of the book, um, the senior's wife, Maria Joel. I think that their story um, it's 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 both local and global in a sense that you can feel as a human being uh, that has some respect for human rights. You can feel the pain and the you know extreme hardship that a family, an average family, has to go through when one of the members of the family decide to engage in such a fight. Um, one of the things that happened with, with, with the children is that uh, when Designo began to publicly denounce some of the abuses that were taking place in Rondon du Para, uh, the four children were banned, you know, almost over the, you know, uh, from doing almost any single activity outdoors. Um, they were scared that they could eventually kill some of the children as, you know, retaliation for the work that he was doing. Uh, so that created a lot of conflict, of course. When I investigated the story and I spent eventually dozens of hours interviewing uh, Maria Joel and the, and the children, there was something that always struck me is that I told them, I asked them, well, it is true that you had a great loss in your family, but it is also true that your father and your mother left a legacy. So what do you think about that? And they were always very candid on telling me that they didn't think they were the winners of anything and that if they would be able to change their lives, they would have no doubt, you know, uh, getting back Dizinho uh, and then simply losing the social battle for, for land. Let's talk about a moment in which things shifted in this story about preserving or uh, pursuing justice. Um, it's the day that Dezinho was murdered. He was killed right outside of his home by a man who had been hired to assassinate him. And the details of this killing, which cover several pages of your book, are, are very gripping and sad. But there's this moment, this moment in which, in the midst of everything, the situation goes from a murder to something more. Because the man who is believed to be Dezinho's killer is caught immediately by neighbors. And as soon as it's clear that Dezinho is dead, they begin to enact their revenge and, and beat him up and... Somehow, in that moment, while her husband, his body is still there, uh, still warm, Dezinho's wife, uh, you've mentioned her name, Maria Joel Diaz de Costa, 
she has this clarity of thought to recognize that the killer isn't just a killer, that he was the key to the larger criminal network that had taken her husband from her. It's when I read it on the page, it's so profound. It must have been incredible when you realize that moment, what, what had happened there. Well, the, the scene that you have just described was this, the, the, the story that actually pulled me into this book and to researching this story. And as you say, what happened was that a hitman misled Maria Joel, uh, Dizinho, that night he wasn't at home. So um, she asked her uh, little daughter to go to uh, ask her father, you know, to come because she thought that the, the hitman uh, was in fact, you know, uh, a laborer who had who, who needed some some help. Uh, and then there's the the murder happens. This is, you know, you've you've described the moment in which Maria Maria Joel realizes that she is a victim, but she also has an opportunity to try to achieve something which is really difficult in the Amazon and is again accountability. Uh, in a sense that about 97, 98% of the land or resource related murders in the Amazon, they're never, they never really, uh, you know, uh, they're never really investigated. They never really um, point to those who mastermind the murders. So when the killer of uh, her wife, of her husband, is actually caught by neighbors and friends, who are willing to kill him, you know, as a vendetta, she decides to she decides to try to prevent that from happening because she realizes that that, you know, that man, that, that killer, who has just changed her life and would change her life for for her life forever again, uh, is the one who might help her to actually reach that, you know. Uh, mastermind uh, who otherwise they would probably, you know, she would probably never know. And and she saved the life of the killer of her husband, which I think is very brave and very difficult, especially in a place like Rondon. She told me many times that if she wouldn't have continued, you know, I mean, she wouldn't have fight for uh, justice and to continue the fight of the Zinho, uh, it, it would be like if you know, her husband was uh, murdered twice because she told me would simply, you know, kind of forget what she did and what she, what he fought, mm. what he fought for. Among the people who became captivated by Maria Joel's quest for justice, which, which is really the meat of the book, um, is Lula, who. We, we should note here for people who maybe are not clear on the secession of Brazilian presidency, isn't just Brazil's new president right now, but he was also the leader of that country from 2003 to 2011 during this very uh, violent and trying time. And you wrote in your book that when Lula ran the first time, many Brazilians, like Dezinho, saw in him the right man to spark the profound changes that the country required, particularly in regards to the policies that would be needed to reverse the devastation in the Amazon. But now I think this 
all gets to the heart of one of the big questions that a lot of people have about Lula right now, which is that if he could not do these things from 2003 to 2011, during his first two terms, when he had greater than 60% of the national vote in both of his elections, what is he up against now following an election when he won with only 51% of the vote? I think that what probably has changed in Brazil, especially after four years uh, of Bolsonaro, um, is a stronger civil society, especially in the uh, frontiers of the Amazon. I'm thinking about indigenous tribes, uh, indigenous groups, and of course, uh, human rights and, and, and civil rights You know, defenders like uh, Maria Joel. We've seen the president and his whole government, you know, working to kind of destroy the foundations for uh, fighting deforestation. But we've seen also the rise of indigenous groups uh, that we don't have to forget. They control about 13% of Brazilian land, especially uh, reservations. And those are some of the most preserved areas of the Amazon. Uh, publicly, you know, uh, saying what is going on in those areas, reporting what is going on, some of them going to the uh, UN General Assembly to uh, say to the world what is going on. And, and I think that's uh, kind of a potential light uh, for Lula. Another thing very different, I, I think that's also uh, crucial, is again the global market. As I told before, as I said before, uh, when Lula uh, reached for the very first time uh, power in Brazil, uh, Brazilian agribusiness was still developing. They were still, it was a very promising sector, but it was still developing. And Lula did a lot to help ranchers and soy producers uh, to increase their output and to kind of, you know, uh, find their way to uh, global markets. But now we've seen this sector, which is something like 25% of the GDP of Brazil, uh, it is already consolidated. There is no question, there is no doubt, you know, according to experts and even uh, politicians, uh, that Brazil doesn't need to further deforest to increase uh, agricultural output. Do you, after four years of investigating the story, um, you know, the story not just of the murder and its aftermath, but, you know, that's that's really central to this narrative. Uh, but, but ultimately, there's a story about how hard it's going to be to dismantle all of the structures that are contributing to the destruction of the rainforest. But you sound a little bit, I think, I'm perceiving a little bit of optimism. This is going to be hard, but do you think it's possible? I do think it's possible. I do think. I mean, um, as you've said, there are powerful and very well organized uh, environmental uh, criminals and environmental uh, criminal networks which are operating in the Amazon. But I also think that Brazil has the know-how and the resources and if it receives the help of the international community to fight very strongly 
those networks. I mean, first of all, Brazil is one of the few countries, I would say, that is able to monitor and uh, which has, you know, its own technology in terms of algorithms to be able to almost, you know, immediately um, know where deforestation is taking place. Uh, secondly, they, they, they know how to fight deforesters and, and criminal uh, networks because they did so uh, during the decades of 2010. And again, I think that Lula has a great opportunity uh, to use the global markets to simply, um, you know, make impossible for deforesters and criminal gangs to sell their produce because if they, they they are destroying the forest because they think at the end of the day they will they will be able to sell their deforested taint you know beef or soy but if they don't have a market for that uh they will simply lose any incentives to continue doing that that's eriberto araujo his new book is masters of the lost land the untold story of the amazon and the violent fight for the world's last frontier. Roberto, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday on UPR and Thursdays and Sundays on KCPW. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by a generous grant from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University and from public radio listeners like you. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.